So hello, everyone, and welcome to episode two of Open Discussions, the Surgery Open Science podcast. This episode, we are excited to welcome Dr. Chad Ball. Dr. Ball is a professor of surgery at the Foothills Medical Center and a member of the Surgery Open Science Editorial Board. Thank you so much for being with us today, Dr. Ball. Uh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Can you start and just introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your background and training and your current practice and some of your research interests? Yeah, sure. I, I'd be happy to. Uh, I'm a Western Canadian uh, kid, I guess you could say. I grew up in Alberta. Uh, I did my undergraduate degree um, at the University of Alberta, then moved on to graduate school at University of British Columbia, med school at University of Toronto, and then surgical residency in uh, back in Calgary. Uh, from there, I moved on to uh, your country, and I spent a couple of years at Emory University in Atlanta doing trauma and critical care and then moved on to Indiana University to do a hepatobiliary and pancreatic fellowship, and then returned back to Calgary at that point to start uh, a practice um, in uh, 2009. Um, my practice right now is uh, um, hepatobiliary and, and pancreatic surgery uh, with a bunch of trauma call and trauma weeks mixed in there. And on the research side of things, as you would probably expect, uh, most of my research follows that those angles. Um, I've tried to fuse um, those two subspecialty fields uh, with benefit to each um, uh, over the last uh, certainly five years or so, and that's probably what I'll focus on for the next uh, five or 10 years as well. Great. I know that's kind of a, a unique um, background in terms of combining hepatobiliary and, and trauma surgery. I don't think I know anyone else who has done that. What was the, I guess, impetus or, or how did you uh, decide that was what you wanted to do and, and how are you combining those in your practice? Yeah, it's, yeah I agree with you. It's certainly, an, uh, I'd almost call it a weird combination. Um, um, we've trained one other person that, that does that. Um, mm -hmm is quite unusual. And I think probably the reason it is, is because typically folks will gravitate towards one of those subspecialties or the other for exactly the opposite reasons. Right. Uh, you know, whether it's the sort of the, the call component or whether it's the patient population and, and, and so on, people like it or dislike it quite strongly. I, I love them both. And I could see uh, myself doing either for, for a long time. The truth is, when I was a trainee as a as a resident, I thought I would always do vascular uh, mm. with with trauma. And as I went through vascular uh, a surgery, it was still the era of a lot of open procedures, like infinitely more open than it is now. And even in that context, I realized that the endovascular component wasn't something I absolutely loved. I like big open cases. Mm -hmm. So that sort of then pushed me towards uh, HPV, given that they're generally the largest open cases in a, in a hospital. Um, and so that was sort of the rationale. And certainly every day that I do each one, I, I, uh, I feel like I derive benefit from having been trained in both. It's, it's kind of neat. Cool. So moving kind of on to, uh, you know, the research side of things and, and the journal side of things, I know you're serving as the editor-in-chief of the Canadian Journal of Surgery, which at least according to Wikipedia, when I was looking into it, it said it's the long longest surviving surgical journal in Canada. Um, can you share just some of the history of that journal and, and your involvement with it? Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting journal, I think. Uh, you know, part of that on Wikipedia is true. 
uh, <laughs> I, I think it started in about 1957. So it's not it's not young and it's not old. You know, it's sort of, mm -hmm. kind of mid career maybe in terms of surgical journal. <laughs> yeah. And the history of it is interesting, though. You're right. It, it was formed by three groups that came together. One was the Canadian Medical Association. Uh, the second one was the Royal College, which is sort of our version of, I guess, your American Board of Surgery. Uh, and then the third was all of the um, academic um, universities or institutions across the country uh, in terms of the department chairs, uh, Department of Surgery chairs. Uh, and that group in particular formed the first editorial board. So they, they constructed it uh, at a pretty high level there um, as a voice for not only academic, but also clinical uh, and community surgeons uh, as well. It's gone through the usual evolution uh, over time, um, uh, but really is the national voice of, of, uh, of, of all things surgery. There is some subspecialty, I should say specialty, uh, other specialty surgical journals in the country, but really essentially they've all gone by the wayside beyond that. So it really is the, the unified national voice. So I'm, I'm very lucky to be involved with it for sure. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Um, speaking of kind of the evolution of, of journals and, and how journals uh, change and grow over time, um, you know, Surgery Open Sciences is an open access publication. And so I just wanted to get your thoughts on the role of open access publications kind of in the whole uh, the landscape of surgical research and kind of now and looking forward yeah that's an interesting uh you know question we could talk about forever i, th I think right. my, my short form comments on yeah. it would, you know, the open access part of uh, publishing is one thing and then the electronic uh a form of publishing is another and it's interesting sitting on many editorial boards of of watch the journals that you and i read um, there's no question that the, the hard copy print versions are going away and they're going away fast. Um, most recently, just this past week, I was in the Journal of Trauma and uh, Acute Care Surgery editorial meeting and uh, within, it sounds like about three years, there will be no print version. And I think that that probably makes sense. And Canadian Journal of Surgery, went, we went to that quite a number of years ago. Um, you, you save some money by doing it. I don't really think people, um, very many people are, are actually looking at the paper form anyway. As far as true open access, you know, it's interesting. I think probably one of the under um, uh, considered things when you're an author is is in part considering a wider target audience than you normally. Obviously, open access publications, um, you know, there's sort of different types of them, and some of them are are free. Uh, anyone can log into the internet and, and pull down an article. As an example, it's what we've done in the Canadian Journal of Surgery. We don't charge for those. Other uh, journals, of course, uh, do charge some fees and some charge very high-end fees. There's a bit of variability there. But, you know, I over the time of, of writing and, and publishing in the last more than 20 years, there is really, I think, high-quality manuscripts that um, I've been involved with that, for example, we put into the Canadian Journal of Surgery um, because we know that they're accessible across the world, whether you're in Africa or Asia or the Middle East, you can pull those articles down. And it's been an interesting voyage doing that because sometimes you, you'll hear, well, why didn't you publish that in the Annals of Surgery or JAMA Surgery or the Journal of Trauma or, or whatever it would be? And, and I sort of think that, you know, there is an access limitation issue there uh, for some of these broader scoped papers that could be of significant benefit to you know, less wealthy resourced um, countries and, and regions. 
so I think that's that's really the the, the power of it. Um, you know, the negative side of it is the commercialization of it uh, and some of the predatory uh, journal okay. spaces. Um, but you know, journals like like yours, um, SOS, uh, it's 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 fantastic that it's that it's available like that in open access. I think it's certainly the future. Yeah, I mean, speaking, I guess, as a uh, millennial or representative of the millennials, I, I can probably count on one hand the number of times that I have um, like really looked through a physical copy of a journal. Everything I've done throughout my training thus far has all been electronic and, and online. And I think I've always had the benefit of having, uh, you know, institutional subscriptions that will get me licensed to, to any journals. But I think just being able to easily access things and, and I think it's definitely changed the way that I think a generation of, of trainees and researchers are, are accessing um, manuscripts and, and the way that we, we learn from the literature. So I think it's a, a to me, I think it's been, been a huge uh, uh, boon for my, for my education. So. Yes. It's, I mean, it's, it's true, right? Like j just to make you and your listeners laugh a little bit. So I, I was told as a medical student in Toronto by somebody that as a surgical resident, I should read one paper every single day of my residency. So that was yeah. one of my sort of stated goals going in. And that's what I did. So, you know, you'd go to the, the journals and you would uh, photocopy or, or pull out, depending on where you got it, of course, uh, a physical hard copy uh, for the week. And yeah. I'd have seven to 10 for the week and they'd be in my bag, they'd be in my pocket and I'd have a highlighter and I'd go through it. And it's, uh, it wasn't that uncommon at that time. And I'm sure, you know, you can't even fathom the, the silliness of that in the, the modern yeah. world. And honestly, right. thank goodness, access to information's power. And, and that's what this gives us as a platform. Yeah. So uh, changing gears a little bit, um, still on the topic of research, but uh, a unique area of research that I think that you have that I wanted to, to ask you about is uh, kind of surgery and space research. So I had never thought of this idea, but um, I think with all of the new stuff with space travel has been kind of heavily featured in the news uh, recently with kind of the growth of, of private companies, space-related endeavors. Um, I guess I just wanted to, if you could educate us about kind of what are the, the current surgical capabilities of a like NASA or equivalent uh, space flight? And then what are kind of some of the biggest unanswered questions um, when it comes to like uh, surgery and space and, and research in that area? Yeah, I mean, that's that's a broad question again, and we could talk about it for hours. Uh, there's also certainly people both in Canada and the US that, you know, spend their entire lives doing nothing but this work. So I, I, I um, uh, you know, despite the volume of, of publications that I've uh, been part of and, and quarterbacked, uh, I, I walk with, with trepidation and, and humility. Um, you know, having said that, I think the surgical sort of emergency um, um, literature that surrounds that and the projects that a small group of us do uh, really in the world sort of surround three maybe broad categories. The first is the idea or the concept of prophylactic surgery. So do you need your gallbladder out if you have gallstones before you go on a long duration space mission to Mars, for example? Um, what's your risk of getting appendicitis as another example? Uh, um, and then the second question really surrounds what's the best way to diagnose these emergency uh, and acute care and surgical type conditions. 
and obviously that surrounds ultrasound, which is which is an interesting topic. And then finally, the third category that a lot of us try and work on, and Andy Kirkpatrick in Canada, who's one of my partners here in Calgary, um, has certainly done that ton of work over the years. Is is your your last question there, which is what are our surgical capabilities um, uh, in space, uh, or or I should say zero gravity right now? And each one of those topics, as I mentioned, could you know, we could talk about for forever. Um, you know, if you just sort of focus on the latter, uh, the the reality is we don't really know. I mean, there's there's been tons of work done both in low Earth orbit as well as in um, planes that um, do parabolic flight that give you little segments of time with zero gravity. So, you know, I'll give you an example of the last um, a study that uh, Andy Kirkpatrick led that that I was involved with uh, here in Canada. Uh, we fly out to Ottawa to our national flight lab, get on a plane uh, that does these uh, parabolic flight cycles. And so you have uh, um, uh, pigs on the, on the plane. And we were trying to figure out if uh, you need insufflation, for example, to do surgery in space. And that's a big engineering question because if you're trying to do laparoscopic surgery, for example, uh, it's, it's a huge problem for the engineers because they have to fly you know, compressed gas. The, every ounce of everything in terms of weight is relevant for, for a, a space flight. Um, there's a ton of danger to that concept. So when you go into zero gravity, as you know, you're, you're um, body changes a lot physiologically and hemodynamically. And so the question was, if you're lying on your back and you need an operation, um, does your abdominal wall become more of a circle rather than an oval, just based on the ability of things to float? Um, and so, you know, that was really the question. So you take a, a procedure that you would do in an animal or in a human that maybe is 30 minutes long and you have to break it down into a 10 part three minute sequence, for example, or depends on the, on the size of, of, of the parabolic uh, loops that the pilots are doing, you get these little windows. And so you do little parts of it and, and try and figure that out. And, and you know, um, what we figured out in that particular single study, for example, was you actually don't need to insufflate the abdomen because when you enter zero G, your abdominal wall does float and your viscera actually stay quite, quite, quite stuck. Uh, mm. Same thing with, with fluid in the belly. So you could imagine you suffer a traumatic injury. You have a bleeding, let's say spleen. What does that blood actually do? In other words, does it float up uh, in the, within the peritoneal cavity that's now enlarged, almost like it's insufflated and does it, you know, block your camera? Well, it turns out it doesn't. The surface tension of the fluids keeps that fluid stuck together and often stuck to the organ. So you can see really quite, quite beautifully. And of course, that, that idea of MIS surgery in space is really um, the holy grail because when you, you know, do a big laparotomy in somebody, then you do have containment problems and contamination problems in a, in a spacecraft. So it's all elements of, of, of that breaking down really big concepts into really small discrete steps and trying to, trying to sort it out. Yeah, that's uh, super, super cool. How did you uh, start to be involved in that? Uh, yeah, I was lucky, uh, I guess, number one. Um, and number two was there was two um, separate avenues that kind of collided. So there was a, 
when I was a junior resident, like in my first year, there was a program um, through NASA, uh, particularly at the Johnson Space Center, um, where you could go down there for a number of weeks, basically take electives or convince your program director and you, and you could go. And it wasn't just surgeons. In fact, there was only three of us that, that were surgical residents. Everyone else was a different kind of medical resident. And you go down there and just learn about it, be around the astronauts and go to some of the you know, amazing facilities, the neutral buoyancy lab and uh, all the stuff you see on TV and, and, and hang out. Um, and that gains you access, obviously, to all those people. So that was the first thing. And then at the same time, um, again, Andy Kirkpatrick, one of my current partners here in Calgary, had moved, just moved from Vancouver to Calgary and had, um, you know, Andy's a flight surgeon and, and had been hooked into that world um, uh, initially, probably about five years or so before that. And so those two things collided, and um, uh, thanks to both of those experiences, um, uh, we were able to do a bunch of stuff going forward. Cool. Mm -hmm. Last last question for you. Um, I know you're working with Surgery Open Science and assembling a special issue on uh, trauma. So I just wonder if you can preview a little of what we can expect from this issue. Yeah, sure. No, I'd be I'd be pleased to. Um, you know, it's more narrow than than trauma specifically. It's about um, you know, the technical ways with which we try and control hemorrhage, in this case, as related to trauma. Um, you know, controlling bleeding has been one of my interests now for uh, certainly over a decade. And as you point out, kind of reflects the fusion of trauma care with, with HPB care. Bleeding mm -hmm. is what, you know, at, the, at its core fundamental um, uh, area is what those two specialties, you know, bleed with, I, or I mean, um, focus on. And I, I also think it's, it's, you know, hemorrhage control and bleeding in general in all surgical patients is sort of what links all of us as surgeons, right? It, it's, it's what makes us anxious, what makes us uh, worrying about you know, preventing blood loss, keeps us awake at night before the case. And we deal with the complications awake at night after the, after those bleeding cases. And so I think it, it links everybody. <clears throat> um, and then about, I don't know, five years ago, um, a large group of us put together a textbook that looked at technical um, uh, hemorrhage control and not just in trauma, to be honest. Uh, there's chapters on endoscopy, there's chapters on laparoscopy, there's chapters on, on chest uh, um, uh, surgery. And that, that book you know, was really uh, based a lot on Top Knife by Dr. Hirschberg and Dr. Maddox. So it was very technical and it was, it was a cookbook, basically how to get out of trouble. And then from there, we developed a, a course, um, a one day course that really is some of the most amazing video-based lectures you've ever seen. And we tend to give that in the Canadian context at our national meeting every year. Um, so it's an extension of, of that. And my concern, of course, as you kind of started off with um, in the interview, is that I'm not sure that current trainees read textbooks very often, and I'm not sure they um, would necessarily know that. So we thought putting it into the published literature, again, in an open access platform would be great. So we've taken, uh, um, you know, sort of a, a just under a dozen of who I consider to be some of the, the smartest technical minds in terms of different types of hemorrhage control and trauma and critical care. And um, everyone's gonna write a, a, a review on their particular um, you know, technical toolbox um, for hemorrhage control in that uh, super subspecialty area. And I think it'll be applicable not only to trauma surgeons, but 
honestly, to any community general surgeon, anybody that has to see any any injury in the torso at any point. So, uh, you know, we're hopeful that it'll it'll be helpful to the journal as well as uh, surgeons world round. Yeah, no, I'm definitely definitely excited for it. Of course, I'll be accessing it online only in my typical way, but um, that's really awesome. So, I think we're definitely looking looking forward to. Um, Looking forward to reading it and looking forward to uh, putting it out out uh, from Surgery Open Science. So, um, thank you so much again for uh, for talking with us. I know um, we could probably talk for a while more about about everything, but um, really appreciate all your your insights and and uh, learning more about about what you do. So, thanks so much. It's my pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity. Be well. Thank you.